Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A warning to Indigenous people listening. This podcast series includes stories of physical and sexual violence, suicide, and death. Listen with caution and care. Oh, yeah, Pino de Massey. Yeah, we go, we go back a little bit, Pino and I. <laughs> Do you want, are we going to talk about him? Can we? Are we allowed to? You know, uh, I, I believed in, uh, you know, his intentions to just get, you know, information out there. It was, it was just basically there to post pictures of people at their worst. And unfortunately, it was also often Indigenous people, so... The first time I realized he was this alternative media source that's just off his rockers, he told everyone that I, I encouraged pedophiles to live in Northwood and that I was doing nothing about pedophiles and that I'm a pedophile lover or whatever he posted on his page. I couldn't believe it. And then it got all these shares, and then people are messaging me saying, what's going on? Why is this guy saying that? Okay, so, so you've been criticized, as a person of criticism, about posting pictures of car crashes, releasing names of individuals uh, that have been um, murdered or atta- attacked or whatever it is that, uh, before the press does, yeah. before anybody does. How do you justify that? The local media wasn't telling the true stories of Thunder Bay, according to Pino Damasi. So he stepped into that void and tried to give people something real. But the stories he told about drunken fights, addicts at rock bottom, and arrests, even when he got his facts right, well, those stories weren't representative of the full lives of the people he publicly exposed on their worst days. And those stories were blind to the systems that produce those outcomes when all faith in the system is lost. Systems which rely on Indigenous people, Indigenous women in particular, for legitimacy. Damasi's tabloid coverage told his readers nothing about his own tragic struggles until those struggles were over forever. I'm Ryan McMahon, and this is Return to Thunder Bay. I'm Greg Giddens. I'm the managing editor of the Chronicle Journal. It's the daily newspaper of Northwestern Ontario. Yeah, I started there about 20 years ago, and I think there was about newsroom of about uh, 25 people, and now we're under 10. We've had some temporary layoffs since COVID started. So, you know, it's it's a small group now. I think there's probably not a newspaper in the world that's not challenged right now. We don't have the resources we used to have. We don't have the subscription numbers and that we used to have. This is all things true of all newspapers. And the revenues are down, so that creates some challenges. But, you know, we cope best we can. Dougal Media, the Chronicle Journal's major competitor, casts a long shadow in Thunder Bay. 
It's been operating in the area for more than 60 years and owns four radio stations, a weekly paper, the high-traffic news site TB Newswatch, and the area's only TV station. In January 2016, its general manager, Don Karen, told the CRTC something that made national headlines. Television, by the way, covers an area bigger than the size of France. We're the only broadcaster that provides television for northwestern Ontario. The reason that we're still in business and we're still operating is the fact that uh, we have unfortunately had a general manager and an owner who passed away in the last year, and the company had fairly significant life policies on them. And the reason we're still operating is that we're burning those non-broadcast assets to stay in business, awaiting to see if there's some way we can work out and the commission can hear our plight of um, angst, if you will. And uh, I just want to to make it aware that um, I'm struggling to stay in the business till September. And if it goes beyond that, uh, then I really have no choice but to consider shutting the whole place down, which will blacken northern Ontario. While the private sector was on life support, and in the wake of the youth inquest, the local CBC shifted to feature Indigenous people in a more positive light, explicitly to challenge media stereotypes. This representation of Indigenous folks conflicted with how Pino Damasi saw the city when he looked out his window every day. As Thunder Bay was wrestling with the truth about itself, and the media was shedding staff, Damazi, an injured construction worker, decided to take matters into his own hands. What have you learned as an administrator of this site? What have you learned from when you started to right now? What have you learned about social media and uh, the effects that your site is having on, on our society? How do you think your you think your site is influencing what goes on in the city? Um, you know what? Um. I'm not really, that's a, that's a loaded question. I'm not really too sure exactly how it's influencing things. I think it's uh, definitely informing people of not only the types of attitudes that people have, but it's informing them of what's going on in the city that they wouldn't have, hear, they wouldn't have heard about otherwise, right? Pino Damasi ran a Facebook page called The Real Concerned Citizens of Thunder Bay. At its best, it was honest-to-goodness citizen journalism. It brought attention to all kinds of stories that the mainstream media either wasn't touching or, if they were, the group didn't think the whole story was being told. The stories were found online, submitted by anonymous tip, or sometimes gathered by a growing army of followers who would race media to an accident or duck police tape to get closer. It got so bad, the cops even issued a press release calling for motorists to stop slowing down and taking pictures while driving past traffic accidents and crime scenes. Those stories complemented the bread and butter of the page, an invasive stream of mostly poor people, blackout drunk, strung out, fighting, and being arrested. Ma'am, stop resisting. I'm filming this right now. Okay, sir, I'm just letting you know. Lots of police presence. What street is this? Syndicate and what? Sweep his feet. Sweep his feet. Sweep his feet. It took off. Damazi's team figured out the best way to game the algorithm post the most controversial and inflammatory content he could find, and then 
let the comment sections run wild. Concerned citizens sometimes got major facts wrong, and their posts had real-life consequences. Here's just a cursory sample of some of the headlines they ran. Cocaine grandmas get popped by police. Overdoses at the mall and in a truck. City hall violent assault. Woman knocked out. Video. Older woman. Fight. A knife and arrest. Video. Friday the 13th. Flailer at City Hall. Meth head trailer park mayhem. One dead. In this fractured media landscape, counselor Aldo Roberto once interviewed Damasi on his YouTube show about issues with the real concerned citizens and his relationship with local reporters. You, you fought with these guys publicly. You shot them down, they shot you down. Can, can we sort of say, hey, you know what? Let's bury the hatchet. Let's go forward. Let's forget the past. Let's just focus I'm, on I'm, what we're doing. I'm already there. I'm just focused on what I'm doing. I don't really care what anyone else is doing. Okay, fair enough. I mean, what I'm doing, uh, a lot of people see value in it. Um, uh, there was a CBC, an ex-CBC journalist who said he loves what I'm doing, he likes it, and he hopes there's more of it. There's a lot of journalists out there who appreciate the page. They see the value in it. They like the honesty and the straightforwardness of it, right? Okay. So, um, you know, a lot of people saying it's illegitimate, it's this, it's that. Well... Whatever you want to label it, it's there, it's real, and it's provable. Damazi built a ragtag group of social media-savvy tech kids. They helped him respond to social media queries. They hand-coded his website. And they trolled people inside the Facebook page he ran. Honestly, I think it was just uh, I seen something, you know, I, I seen an opportunity um, to help somebody in a meaningful way without uh, really having to put in much work myself. And it just felt like, you know, something that I should do. But at the same time, uh, I believed in, uh, you know, his intentions to just get information out there. This is Jonathan Gray. He worked with Damasi on the Real Concerned Citizens of Thunder Bay website. In digital publishing, traffic is currency. The more people on your site, the more ad money you can make. Entire industries have popped up to figure out how to get more people to a site and keep them on it. When this is what drives you, the truth sometimes takes a back seat. A story about an alleged serial rapist could be run with the photo of a person who just happened to have the same name. People who'd never even been to Thunder Bay would wake up to Facebook messages saying they'd been accused of child pornography. He would be constantly comparing uh, ratings and stuff, for example, between himself and other prominent news sources, mostly TV Newswatch. I think he, he's seen TV Newswatch as his main rival. TV Newswatch is the main source for online news in Thunder Bay. Leith Dunnick is its editor. It didn't seem there was a lot of standards when it came to publishing. Most of the time, there would be very little traffic. And by very little, I mean like uh, maybe... 70 people at a time by the end of it. That used to be, like, at the start, that was a lot of traffic. But uh, by the end of it, uh, 70 people wasn't very much. It was, you know, shaming, and we didn't want to draw attention to it. You know, it was, it was just basically there to post pictures of people at their worst. Um, and unfortunately, it was also often Indigenous people. So, I mean, maybe we could have reacted a little bit, but I'm not sure what we could have done. Like, there's nothing we could have done to stop it. I think uh, early on, he was really proud of like a uh, 20,000 sessions a day uh, milestone that he wanted to hit. And I would be out on assignment 
you know, maybe at a, a fire or something like that. And you would see, you'd start to see people driving up in their vehicles, people you had no idea who they were. And they'd start taking photos and, you know, they'd share them on it. And then they'd get a little bit of notoriety for, for sharing this photo or they do it anonymously, but, you know, they'd see their name, you know, a lot of them would see their name in print and, you know, that was pretty cool and their photos and stuff like that. And they felt like they were contributing. I'll give Mr. Damasi credit for creating a community that was willing to share. Uh, I think most news outlets around the world would be envious of having that kind of interaction with the public willing to share this information with them. And uh, by the end of it, uh, some stories were hitting upwards of 100,000. Oh, it was huge. I mean, they had, what, 40,000 people signed up to their Facebook page? I mean, that's unheard of in a community like this. I mean, you know, but I mean, people wanted to watch because it was sensationalized. And it was, you know, it's not necessarily that they, you know, I I could tell you countless people that signed up for the page because they just, wanted to see the train wreck or what was going on. And, you know, I'd be out on a story. And say, Did you see that? Oh my goodness. How dare they publish that? Or what were they thinking? Or, oh my God, they got that so wrong, but they were still watching. Well, it is media. It's not journalism. This is CBC's Jody Porter. She thinks one of the reasons people in Thunder Bay flocked to the real concerned citizens was to see more of the internal workings of the justice system and get some of the gory details local reporters wouldn't give them. Details about people like Barbara Kentner. In 2017, after Barbara Kentner was killed, there was a story or a post on the real concerned citizens of Thunder Bay about previous interactions that Barbara had had with the justice system. After Barbara Kentner was hit by a trailer hitch, and after charges were laid against Braden Bushby for throwing him, the real concerned citizens set out to discredit Kentner. They posted things from her past that had nothing to do with the trial. I decided it was time to do a story and and see whether they were within the rules, and if not, what was going on. I was curious. The real concerned citizens had started posting photos of court dockets, something reporters don't do. Porter saw the page pushing boundaries and wondered what was behind it. I was curious because social media is democratizing a whole bunch of things. And so maybe it will in the end democratize the justice system in a way that's helpful. And I wanted to explore that. I went at it with genuine curiosity, attempted to contact the person who runs that Facebook page. I was told that they wouldn't speak to me um, on the record, and I got a Facebook message accusing me of being a Nazi. And so, you know, a meme was made of me and went around Facebook, and I started getting concerned for my safety, actually. I work not far from the courthouse. That person, I see their, I would see their vehicle close by my work. I was often at work late at night alone. And so I stopped reporting on the real concerned citizens of Thunder Bay. Mainstream media might cover the splashy drug kingpin trial or run the big cop photo ops with drugs and money and guns on the table. But Damasi thought the surging number of overdoses weren't getting enough coverage. Damasi's coverage of the opioid crisis never talked about the systems that led to addiction and which failed to treat it. He was focused on addicts themselves, 
their petty crimes and displays of public intoxication. To his critics, he exploited the pain and suffering of the opioid crisis for clicks, shaming addicts publicly and turning their personal tragedies into entertainment. Damasi himself struggled with addiction, like many of the people on his page. And on March 29, 2020, he was found dead. The police did not release a cause of death. Just like so many of the people in his stories, Damasi died alone in a cheap motel room. In death, Pino Damasi scooped the local media in Thunder Bay one last time. By the time TB Newswatch had done their diligence and confirmed that Damasi had, in fact, died, it was old news. Everybody already knew. It was all over Damasi's Facebook page. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 2011, Thunder Bay launched an anti-racism committee and hired Kuchiching First Nation member Sarah Nelson as its first coordinator for a new campaign that called on citizens to at least respect each other. My understanding of that campaign was that it's supposed to be an anti-racism campaign. Like, that was always really the focus. My first boss, she told me, you know, you need to research racism and, you know, almost do like a literature review about racism. So that's what I did. That boss soon took maternity leave. And by the time Nelson got served with the Respect Campaign's final product, it all came down to a basket of green buttons with the word respect printed in white. Businesses and organizations could receive matching window decals to show they were on board. You know, I became aware that it was more of like a window dressing attempt, like to, you know, kind of say we're doing something about racism. Like, that's what I see the city doing personally. That's my personal opinion, is that they are doing the bare minimum about racism. But there were some problems with doing the bare minimum. Racism is uncomfortable. Addressing racism is uncomfortable. Turns out, virtue signaling has its limits. It's used as a, you know, I respect you and me. Like, I, I respect everyone equally. Like, it's you're saying that, but you might still be making racist jokes. And I've even heard of people utilizing it as, you know, oh, you got to respect me. You can't call me out on that. You know, they're saying something racist. Hey, look, I'm wearing the respect button. Respect me and my opinions. Damian Lee is a member of Fort William First Nation. He's an associate professor at Ryerson University, an associate fellow with the Yellowhead Institute, and has written extensively about Thunder Bay's relationships with Indigenous people. If you actually look at the respect campaign and what respect is all about, it actually shuts down hard conversations about racism. If you are calling out or addressing 
somebody's actions or a policy or something that is racist, all that that person or that institution has to do is say, I feel disrespected. You should not be talking to me about this because you're making me feel uncomfortable. Right there, that is where the solution stops. The city renewed Nelson's one-year contract for another six months. But after the public launch of the program, she was called into a meeting. They said to me, like, we think that you're seeing this respect campaign through your own lens. And we think you're biased because you're Indigenous. Nelson was told that she had a biased view of the anti-racism campaign because she was racialized. And I was like really floored by that because I was like, well, what what have I been doing these last like six months or so that I've been working on this? So I sat down with her and I said, you know, did you ever think that maybe you're biased because of your white lens? And she said, I never thought of that. In Nelson's words, the respect campaign actually became the good manners campaign. It continues to this day. And those same people are still in charge. It's the same people, the same white people, mainly white people. There are some people of color. So that has changed because back when I was there 10 years ago, there was none. It was like, well, one or two. And they would come and go because they were outnumbered. And, you know, they didn't feel like their voice mattered. And I experienced the exact same thing. There's also the story of Joyce Hunter and the bigger story of the Aboriginal liaison office. My name is Joyce Hunter and I'm from Pewanik. It's on the Hudson Bay coast and I'm a mom and I live and work in Thunder Bay. I worked as the Aboriginal Liaison Strategy Coordinator for the city of Thunder Bay in the Aboriginal Liaison Unit. So there's a non-disclosure agreement um, that is attached to my uh, the terms of my settlement. And because of that, I cannot talk about the specific incidents that are a part of the complaint that I filed and then also who was involved and what had occurred through all of those different things that happened. And uh, I can't get into any of those details. This was a difficult conversation to have because of the NDA, but I'm grateful to her for what she was able to share because some of this is not easy to hear. The last year and a half, almost two years, I wasn't actually at work. I experienced a lot of like racial violence and discrimination. It got so bad that there were a lot of days where I had stress hives and I got panic attacks fairly regularly. Um, and then by the end, I felt like I was trapped in my own body because it felt like I had tears in my heart and they, the pain of it radiated across my clavicle, down my left arm into my hand. And then other days, it would also radiate up my neck and across my head and just sit there like an ugly headache. And um, it's strange when your body physically has turned on you, but you can't shut it off. And that went on for, yeah, like a, at least a year and a half. And it's exhausting. Like it, it's uh, when your body is stuck in fight or flight mode, it, it becomes um, really difficult to function. And so being able to get through a day was very difficult. And so like I, I fell into, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, major depressive disorder and anxiety as well as PTSD. 
And um, I had to, uh, in order to get my life back on track, uh, for a period I was on medication in order to manage those symptoms and uh, so that I could function, so I could go through, through uh, treatment in order to resolve the issues that I was experiencing. Hunter isn't the only one to leave that office. It's been a frustrating revolving door. Since the beginning, this office has struggled to maintain its staff. We're not just talking about a small handful of disgruntled city employees. A wave of institutions in Thunder Bay hired Indigenous women into what they thought were meaningful leadership positions. The University Law School hired Angelique Eaglewoman as its dean, the first Indigenous law dean in Canada, who quit claiming systemic racism in the university made it impossible for her to do her job or to serve Indigenous communities. Citing a toxic work environment, she's now suing Lakehead University for constructive dismissal and racial discrimination. There are other examples. These women work in education, healthcare, law and corrections, and in politics. We've spoken with these people. They arrived at their new positions inside the system under the guise of indigenization and reconciliation. In the end, it was all just a wet cardboard cutout. When a little bit of pressure was applied, it would all collapse. The rigid status quo behind it revealed the promise was a lie. Some said they felt like they were the box that got checked. They can't go on the record. Some of them fear for their safety. They all still have to work in this town. People always ask about the positive stories in Thunder Bay. The one that always gets mentioned and held up as a model is the city's public library. It's been working hard to decolonize itself. It even got a shout out from the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario for its work combating racism and colonialism, which for those of you keeping score at home, the Lieutenant Governor is the Queen's representative, the literal colonial power in Canada at the provincial level. Vice Regal. John Pateman immigrated from the UK to become the chief librarian and CEO of the Thunder Bay Public Library. It's a white settler institution that's been unchanged, you know, since it was established. It was established for white people. It's used by white people. Uh, I could see no evidence of Indigenous people using the library, and I could see no reason why they would want to, because there was no reflection of their history, their culture, their values, their art, their literature, nothing. So there was a complete mismatch. Pateman was management. He pointed out to his board that most library visitors were aging white women. He argued that if the library wanted more visitors, it should appeal to the city's growing Indigenous population. I would just say, look at the results. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the stats. Look at these figures. Look, a membership's gone through the roof, right? He took his efforts one step further. He created two job postings specifically for Indigenous people without the usual requirement for a background in library sciences. I did that because I recognised that Indigenous people in this country don't have access to middle and higher educational opportunities like the rest of the white folk do. So they're unlucky to have the qualifications needed to get into white professions like librarianship. So we said we don't need that, frankly. You can learn the library piece on the job. What we need more critically is the lived experience of an Indigenous person. What is it like to live as an Indigenous person in Thunder Bay? And we use that knowledge uh, to reshape the library. 
You remember Samantha Bird. Her canoe was commandeered by the police in that last episode when they pulled a drowning woman from the river. She was looking to put her education degree to good use in a city with a lot of Indigenous people. She had the experience they were looking for, and she got the job. So I remember on my first week on the job, a colleague said to me, you know, Sam, it's really hard for me to view you as my peer when you don't have a master's. Her first week, told by a colleague that she doesn't deserve to be there because she doesn't have the education they do, even though the focus on her skills and experiences over a master's degree is exactly why she was hired in the first place. Any Indigenous person will tell you who works within a white power structure, the stresses on, the daily stresses on you, the microaggressions, the expectations, the double standards, everyone's held to a higher standard. If you're, if you're Indigenous, somehow you've got to be, you know, prove yourself more than other people. She stayed for a while, but kept her ears open for other opportunities. Thunder Bay's library is receiving awards and recognition across the country, and Bird says she's proud of the work she did there. I like this. I like um, doing this work in the city and I like being around Nishnabek all day, every day at the library. Like, I love that. But yeah, the systems in the library, really at all levels, because there was issues at the management level and there were issues like with those, yeah, with technicians and assistants as well, which just made it so toxic and so hard. And so now I find even when I'm in a new position with a great team, whenever I meet with one-on-one with my supervisor, I have like, I don't want to call it PTSD, but really like in my gut, I get all anxious and I'm like, oh, she's going to be mad at me for something. I think it's important to say that it's not just, it's not just about the systemic racism. Many, if not most settler staff at the library would also say it's a toxic work environment. And so I guess this is what's hard about being Nishinaabe is that oftentimes you get the like regular levels of bullshit and then you get the like racist levels of bullshit on top. And so it's, it's quite a lot. <laughs> time and time again, Indigenous people step into these organizations with the best intentions to fix the system from within. It's fair to say what's being tried so far isn't working. In Canada, Indigenous people are overwhelmingly represented in state systems, including prisons, child welfare, and social service programs. Despite Indigenous children making up only 7.7% of the national total, they make up 52.2% of children in foster care. I'm back with journalist John Thompson. About two-thirds of homeless people in Thunder Bay identify as Indigenous, and more than a third of those have spent some time in foster care or group homes. Now, that's in extreme poverty, but according to the city, fully half of those living under the poverty line are Indigenous. More than 30% of the inmates in Canada's prison systems are Indigenous, even though they make up only 5% of the population. Indigenous women account for 42% of all women in federal custody. And in the notorious Thunder Bay Jail, 75% of inmates identify as First Nations. This is the context for what you see when you look out your window. If you had the skills, if you had the experience, wouldn't you try to get on the inside to make a difference? To fix it? Especially if the system said it wanted to be fixed. 
There's one more story I need to tell you about. A young Anishinaabe mom named Farron Forbes. After overcoming her struggles with opiates, she put her education and social work to use. She enrolled in leadership programs, won awards, and became the youth representative on governance boards. She worked with Thunder Bay's institutions, with schools, with the police, to build trust between Indigenous teens and these systems. She was there for Thunder Bay systems. But when she relapsed, those systems weren't there for her. When I went to the hospital visits, one was to get off methadone because I felt that was not a long-term decision. That's where I started noticing that the hospital would really look down on me and frown upon me for being a, a drug user. And that, that wasn't the case, though. That was because I was getting off of drugs is why I needed a, a little, just to be on the safe side of things, uh, to get off methadone, especially it's, you know, I wanted to make sure that like, is, is anything going to happen to me if I go off on such a high dose or something? So they just helped me with that, but they also feel like I'm going in there for drugs. And that's when I decided to detox myself. This is Alan Forbes, Farron's father. We got a call uh, from my other daughter, Megan, um, saying that Farron was in distress. Uh, she had been uh, detoxing for a few days and Megan had, uh, had trouble getting uh, Farron to be responsive. So we went to Farron's apartment and we saw Farron laying on the floor uh, where she had been laying for about three days by herself. So we were very concerned. We couldn't even raise her. We couldn't get her to get up. We couldn't wake her. So we ended up calling an ambulance. And we told the ambulance um, she had been coming off of some heavy-duty drugs for a few days. And we were just very concerned about her, her health. And I thought, no way. There's no way that they would treat her badly because look at the condition she's in. Forbes's family checked her in at the hospital, left their contact info, and were told to go home. We went home and uh, we went to bed that night. And at about 1.20 in the morning, we got a phone call from the hospital saying that Farron was being discharged. And I had just woken up, so I was really having a hard time comprehending, like, what's, what's going on here? And they said, like, how can she be discharged? I woke up to a pressure point in my shoulder to one of the nurses, and then I asked for something to drink. At this time, too, I'm very dehydrated and for three days not eating or drinking. And uh, I had puke in my mask, so I was trying to take it off, but then he kept saying, put it back on, put it back on. So I put the mask back on because so he had it like one strap on. So I would take this off and then he would put the other strap on. I remember being wheeled down to and then having them sit me up so where I could do an x-ray. And then the, another time uh, when I woke up, I remember asking for a drink again and for gravel because I felt like I was going to get sick. And he said, you can't, you're being discharged. So that's when they were trying to get me out of the bed. I noticed I didn't have shoes on. So I, I told them, I was like, I have bare feet. He says, well, we, are you asking me for shoes? He says, we don't hand out shoes here. So at this time, he held me up by my arm and walked me straight out the front doors. So that's when I, I just sat on the bench. So I laid down, and I remember waking up freezing, and my feet were frozen. So I, I got up, and I went to the emergency room to see what was going on. And uh, he's like, oh, are you, sorry, what, are you waiting for a ride? I said, yes, can I just wait in here for a minute? And I told him I was extremely cool, so he said, yeah, you just wait on the chairs there. We found that Farron sleeping on the chairs in the waiting room. This is Alan's partner, Gary Mack. We asked, you know, how could she be ready to leave uh, so suddenly? 
We had her in a wheelchair in the uh, in the lobby of the emergency room. There was nobody else around, and Farron was not even able to keep her body up in the wheelchair. She was uh, rocking back and forth, and she was un- unable to sit up straight. Uh, we were very concerned. We asked to speak to the to the doctor to find out uh, what was happening. They advised us that they had offered her detox, uh, by which they meant they had just given her the phone number of detox. Farron and her sister had been trying to call detox or had been calling detox for several days trying to get uh, Farron in there. So really all they were offering her is a phone number and just to to go home and and, uh, get out of there. So we ended up leaving feeling quite discouraged. And as we were leaving, uh, the security guard started mocking us. He had mentioned to the uh, nurse to write down uh, hospital policy in her notes for, as I guess, for as why, why we were leaving. Yeah. And I said, oh, hospital policy. And he said, yeah, hospital policy, hospital policy. And he kept mimicking this with a high-pitched voice, yeah, which was very feminine. Um, it, was, it was just outright homophobic treatment. It was just terrible. When you have nowhere else to go or to turn, you think, I'm going to go to the hospital. <laughs> and that's that's not really an option for a lot of people now. It's getting turned away and to feel more horrible than what they did, it's it's a scary thought. I could have been a missing person that night. Like a, Somebody said, get in the car, I would have hopped in that car thinking, <laughs> you know, they tell me to put a pukey mask back on, I put it back on. <laughs> like, it's uh, so... I was very vulnerable. It could have been anybody who came up and asked me to get in the car. I was disgusted on how, how they treated her, and I, I honestly would not have believed it ever. Farron's parents might not have believed her if they hadn't seen it for themselves. If she would have come home that night with this story, would they have listened? Would anyone have listened? She'd have been asked for proof, a timeline, names. Where's the evidence? Whose house were you at? But all of this happens because you're Indigenous. You can work for the city, can work at the library, you can sit on boards of distinction, but this happens to you because you're Indigenous. This will happen to you if you won the Mahatma Gandhi Prize for Peace or the Meritorious Service Cross, if you chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, if you've ruled over three inquiries and have defined systemic racism in Canadian law. This will happen to you, even if you're Senator Murray Sinclair. I was in the hospital one time. They took me to the hospital and my family did because I was having abdominal and chest pains. And, uh, and but it was not, I, I knew from the symptoms I was, I was having that it was not cardiac related. So uh, as I'm in emergency, this young doctor comes over and he um, he comes walking into the area where I'm lying in the bed and he said, uh, tell me what your problem is. And I said, well, I'm having chest pains, but they're combined with abdominal pain. So I don't think it's a cardiopulmonary problem. And he said, whoa, cardiopulmonary. He said, that's a big word for a guy like you. And <laughs> I said, well... You know, you just got out of medical school, what, uh, last year, year before last? He said, well, yeah, I just graduated a couple of years ago. I said, well, did you ever study the pediatric cardiac surgery inquiry that was written here in Manitoba? And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, that was me who wrote it. And he looked at me and he said, 
what's your name again? <laughs> and I said, take a look at the chart. And, uh, and he did. And he said, I'll be right back. <laughs> and he left and he never came back. For Indigenous people, the answer to injustice is not necessarily justice. We don't know what justice feels like in this country. What we hold on to is a sense that we deserve justice and that the system should work for us. So we fight. We push. We build community. We go on memorial walks. We ask to be seen and heard. We express our humanity to anyone that will listen. We're forced to defend our humanity to the justice system over and over and over again to prove our lives matter. It's happening right now in Thunder Bay with the death of Barbara Kentner and the trial of Braden Bushby. And this trial is not equipped to carry all the weight it's symbolically holding. Bushby is not everyone who has ever thrown something from a car. And Kentner's family is not all the Indigenous kids who have told us that this has happened to them. But this is the one we know about. This is the one where they found the guy who did it. It's the one where he admitted it. And this is the one where an Indigenous woman, an Indigenous woman named Barbara Kentner, died. What happens on December 14th when Barbara Kentner's family hears the verdict? Can there be justice? What does it look like for Barbara and her family? For Indigenous people in Canada? For Thunder Bay? Are we ready for the answers? That's next time on the final episode of Return to Thunder Bay. Return to Thunder Bay is hosted by me, Ryan McMahon. Research and reporting by John Thompson, Ryan McMahon, and J. Patrick Thomas. Written by Ryan McMahon, John Thompson, David Crosby, and J. Patrick Thomas. Produced and edited by David Crosby. Music by Chris Dirksen. Mixing and sound design by Chandra Bullockon. Jesse Brown is the executive producer of Return to Thunder Bay. This episode was made possible by the generous support of Jennifer Graham. If you like what we do, please support us at canadaland.com slash join. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.